Good morning, church. That's the spirit. I wanted to begin this morning, tell you about a little tradition that Tiffany and I have had ever since we've gotten married. I remembered when um, we got married in 2001, we started off like a lot of you all, we didn't have anything, we were living in an apartment. And I remember our first year together, we had, didn't have a couch, didn't have any furniture whatsoever. We had two lawn chairs sitting in the living room, and our TV was on the floor. And we had two TV tables that somebody had gotten us for wedding gifts. And that's how we spent our first Christmas. We had a little tree that we had bought down uh, the road at this little, uh, you know, little tree place and whatnot. And after that first year, this little tradition that we've had is every year... We always sit down, and now we do it every year with our children, but we read the story about the birth of Jesus Christ from the Gospel of Luke. And as you can imagine, doing that over the course of the last 20-something years, I've had a lot of time to think about that story, think about the characters, meditate on all the, the lessons that the Bible is teaching us through the story of the birth of Jesus Christ. And as I think about that story this morning, and I contemplate the Christmas story and all the people that were involved, there's this one person, this one character who, to me, really reminds me of just how the busyness of life can sometimes interfere with some of the most important things in our lives. The story about this man's life could have read a lot differently. If he had made just one decision, if he had just open the door. That's literally all this man would have had to have done. If he had just opened the door, then maybe you and I this morning would have a, another hero to talk about in the Christmas story. Maybe when we look at our nativity sets that we place in our houses, there would be one more figure that we would put down to recognize and remember the story of the birth of Jesus. But because he didn't open the door, the Bible records these words. In Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, it says, In those days Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everybody went to his own town to register. And so Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth to Galilee, to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and the line of David. The Bible continues and says that he went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. Now, while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because, and this is the key phrase that I want you to focus on, if you like to underline things in your Bibles, this would be a nice little place to underline. It says, because there was no room for them in the inn. Now, there's not a lot that's said here in this passage about this, about this innkeeper. We don't know his name. We don't know where he came from. We don't know um, the size of this lodging place. We don't know how many rooms was in it or how much he charged or anything like that. But what we know is, is that when Mary and Joseph finally arrived in what used to be their hometown a long time ago, when they came to this particular innkeeper, when the Son of God needed a place to rest his head, 
There was no room. There was no room in the end. Now, the question that I have, and naturally this is the question that arises when you, when you read this story, is, is why? I mean, was there really no room in, in the end there? Was there really no rooms? Could you not have made some room, especially for two people, especially a woman who was obviously very, very pregnant from the looks of things? Could you not have made a little bit more room? What's going on here in the text? I want to conjecture with you for a moment. Now, I realize that the Bible doesn't give us a lot of information, but, but I have just a few ideas. And, of course, we can't know for sure what all the reasons are, but, but a good place to begin to try to understand why there was no room in the end is for what it says in chapter 2, verse 7. It says, literally, that there was no room in the end. So the first conjecture I have is, is that, well, I guess it was just too crowded. I mean, you think about what was going on. It says that Kyrenius, the governor, had done this census, and apparently this was the first of its kind. And, and so everybody was scrambling and going back to their hometown to, so that they could register for this, for this census. And so when they get to this tiny little town of Bethlehem, they had apparently gotten there a little bit late because the place was crowded. It normally was the little sleepy town of Bethlehem, but not now. People were coming in from all over the place, and so everywhere you went, all the lodging places, all the people's homes, all the houses, everywhere that you could go was completely crowded. Every bed was full. Every mat had someone laying on it. All the hallways were lined with children. Families were sleeping all over the place. Everything was taken. The fact of the matter is, the Bible says, literally, simply enough, it was just too crowded to find a place to sleep. Now, don't you have a little bit of a problem with that? Because think about it. Let's say you had something going on. It was cold, and you had a lot of family and friends over, and maybe you had all the beds full, and you had kids sleeping on your couch, and maybe you even had some people making pallets on the floor. But if somebody came at your door, and they knocked, and you looked out, and you could tell that they were cold, they were shivering, you could tell that the woman was very pregnant, could you not make any room at all? I'm sure some of us would. So I have a hard time with the excuse. And that's why it makes me wonder if there might have been some other reasons why that there was no room in the end that night. And this is where we get into a little bit of conjecture, but, but maybe, let's just say for hypothetical purposes, let's say that maybe in addition to the place being crowded, maybe also, secondly, it was just too late in the night. Right? The Bible says that they get there, it's late, and so the candles would have already been snuffed out. The large beam that they would use as a lock behind their door had already been set in its place, and all you would be able to hear at this point would be the sound of the fire crackling in the background and the light sound of snoring as people were snoozing away fast asleep. And then all of a sudden, there's this, this little gentle knocking at the door. In my mind's eye, I could imagine the innkeeper getting up out of bed, putting something around his body because it might have been a little chilly that night. And so he comes, he opens the door, he cracks it just a little bit just to see what's going on outside. And he looks out there and he sees Joseph. He sees Mary, this tiny, this, 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 this baby that's in her belly. She, he sees her pregnant. He sees her probably sitting on this donkey. And they're just trying to find a place to say, and I'm just imagining here, 
that he was probably thinking to himself, you know, if you had just been here a little earlier, I can't let you in because it's already so late. The place is already so crowded. Everybody's already asleep. And and these people have already paid such good money to get a good night's rest. And so if I move that wooden beam, it's going to make a bunch of noise. and, 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 And it's going to wake everybody up. Everybody's going to get angry. And so I'm sorry. It's just too crowded. And it's just too late. And I'm sure you'll be able to find a place to stay somewhere else. And so he closes the door, he puts the wooden beam back down just a little bit. He slowly, quietly goes back, crawls back into the bed with his wife. His wife says, who was that? And he says, oh honey, I would have loved to have helped them, but but it's just so late and I'm so tired and I've already got a full day ahead of me tomorrow. There's so many things I've got to do to get ready because there's so many people. And by the way, she was really pregnant. That leads me to a third reason that I conjecture that it could be a reason why that they were not able to get room that night, and that is number three, it was just too complicated. It's just too complicated. Because, well, the situation was, 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 was such that if you bring in a woman who's got a baby, now ladies, I'm not making any kind of comments here, I'm not trying to be slight or negative or anything like that, but, but let's just be obvious, if you bring this very pregnant woman into this crowded lodging place and everybody's already asleep, well, let's just be honest. I've had five babies. I know what it's like in the middle of the night. They cry all the time. They wake up all the time. They have to be fed every few hours. Sometimes they're colicky. Sometimes they cry. So you don't know what's going to happen. If this woman starts going into labor in the middle of the night, you want to talk about inconvenience to the rest of the people living in there? It's just so complicated. And with all of that, there might have been one other reason. And this one's not a very nice one. But based upon what we know about social classes in the first century, another reason why they might not have been given a place to stay that night is because, quite honestly, they were just too common, just too poor. You say, how do you know that? Well, we know that Jesus was born poor because when he finally is born, Mary has to offer a sacrifice to two turtle doves. That's a little side law in the book of Moses that says, hey, by the way, if you're too poor to sacrifice a lamb, God made an exception for those who were the poorest of the poor to make sure that they would be able to make the proper sacrifices. That's the kind of sacrifice they gave. These people were poor. They were from the north. They were from Nazareth. That was a different kind of people. And so when he looks out and he sees it, he's not very impressed with what he sees because they're just too common. Now, you and I know with the way that we kind of do our social classes today, if they had shown up with prestige credentials, if they had been nobles, if they had been people of wealth, if if they had been King Joseph and Queen Mary, now that might have gotten the innkeeper's attention a little bit more. But they were just too common. And the inn was just so crowded And the hour was just so late. And the situation was so complicated. Four conjectures. Four conjectures as to why Jesus was turned away that night. You want to know where I found those reasons? I didn't find them in the Bible. You may not like the answer. But I found those reasons, those excuses in us. 
Because if you think about it as human nature, things have not changed all that much from the first century until today as far as the excuses that we tend to make when it comes to Jesus Christ in our lives. And if you think about it, I was thinking about what was said over here just a few minutes ago with the children's, with children's church. If you think about it, Jesus still knocks on the door, doesn't he, so to speak? There's that famous passage over in the book of Revelation, chapter 3, verse 20. He's talking to the church in Laodicea, and these are Christians, by the way, that, that he says were rich, and they were content with all of their goods and earthly treasures. This was a picture of a church that had grown so self-absorbed and so self-exuberant that it, it was fully confident in itself because of what it had. It was fully satisfied and fully spiritually destitute. So Jesus says to this church, here I am. I stand at the door and I knock. And if anybody hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and I will eat with him and he with me. I can't tell you how many times over the years I've heard people talk about this passage of Scripture and they will use this passage of Scripture in the context of salvation. That's not the context of the passage. The context of the passage is that this is a church that has gone so far away from relationship with Jesus Christ. Where is Jesus supposed to be in the church? He's supposed to be in the church. He's not supposed to be outside the church, knocking on the door, wanting the church to let him in. I don't want you to miss the picture of what he's saying here. Now, he uses this picture. He says, if you open the door and let me in, we'll sit down, we'll have a fellowship meal together. Now, we don't think of sitting down and having meals together like they did in the first century. Not completely. We kind of sit down and just have a common meal and have lunch and do some chit-chat, talk about football, go home, go to the next thing on your list. But that's not the way it was in the first century. Sitting down to have a meal together in the first century was full of meaning, and it meant that I accept you, I love you, and I want to share my life with you. It was all about relationship and getting to know each other and sharing each other's stories and likes and dislikes and, and sharing each other's successes and failures. It was a time to bond and to enjoy a shared experience of life. That's what it meant to sit down and have a meal together in the first century. And Jesus says to this church, I want to do that with you. If you're willing to let me in. See, Jesus does the coming and the knocking. We are to do the hearing and the letting in. So in a real sense, we are the innkeepers of our own heart, are we not? In a very real sense, how many of you know that you are the innkeeper of your own heart and that nobody has the right to let anybody in other than you? And at some point, you have to come to realize that if I want God to come into my life, if I want to actually enjoy His presence and enjoy His fellowship in a spiritual way, then it really is up to me. If He's outside the door and He's knocking, if He's wanting to come in, it's because for whatever reason, I have chosen to shut Jesus out of my life or that part of my life. But if He's in my life, if I'm enjoying the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, it is because I have surrendered my heart to Him and I have let Him into my life 100% fully. I'm here to tell you this morning, the choice is yours. It truly is your choice. Isn't it interesting, generally speaking, that some of the same responses that Jesus received in Bethlehem that night 
are the same kinds of responses that people give to the Savior today. For example, a lot of times people look at Christ and they say, there's no room for you in my life. It's just too crowded. You know, we live busy lives. And what's really ironic about that is that you and I live in the technological age. We were promised all these years ago that with more technology it would save us time. And that we would have more time on our hands to be able to do things that are most important. But you know what we've witnessed over the course of the last 30 years? Is that the more technologically advanced we become, the more time it frees us up so that we can become more busy. We don't have self-control with our time. Instead of slowing us down to do less, all these things have done is sped us up so that we can do more. And so today, the modern person, the typical person, a lot of times who sits in the pews, it may even be you this morning. You feel overworked, stressed out, over-medicated with lives that are too crowded and too busy, and you know it. And to make matters worse, you go to church, and you hear that annoying preacher come at you and say, Jesus will help you if you let him into your life. Jesus will change everything and make it better. All you've got to do is just be responsive to him. All you've got to do is give him your heart, your life. All you've got to do is give him your time. And then that little voice just comes up in the back of your throat and you say, but I don't have the time. Remember the innkeeper said that too. It's just too crowded in here. There's no room for you in here. Don't you know that if you spend time with the Lord daily, if you get up in the morning and you spend the first part of your day with Him, don't you know that it will reorder the rest of your life for the rest of that day? Don't you know that somehow supernaturally, I guarantee it, I've seen it many times in my life, that if you get up in the morning and you set aside all those to-do lists and you give the first part, the first tithe of your time for the day, that it will change your life for the rest of that day. You know why? Because you've put the first things first. Because you've gotten up that morning and you said, you know what? I'm going to give my heart to Christ. And what happens from that point forward is that that day you have a proper perspective on the rest of your life. When you get up and you have time in the morning and you read the Word of God, you pray, you've got some 95-5 time, what that does is it helps you get a proper perspective and it takes the pressure off of you. You know why? Because you realize at the beginning of the day, that the weight of the world is not sitting on your shoulders. It's sitting on His. And so what do I do with the rest of my day? Well, what that does is it frees me up to then have the expectation that the rest of my day is simply to love God, to serve Him, to love others, to love our families, and to know that God has everything under control. I promise you, if you take time to do that, it will reorder your entire life. But you know, sometimes we... We don't use that excuse. Sometimes we don't say it's too crowded. Sometimes we also say this. It's just too late. I can't tell you how many times I've heard that as a pastor. So many times I have sat and listened to people pour out their hearts and tell me sin after sin after sin. Stuff that would make your skin crawl. And I've heard this excuse so many times. It's just too late. I've done too much. I've made so many mistakes and I can't see that God would accept me anymore. Let me tell you something, guys. Abraham was an old man, but God led him. 
Moses committed murder as a young man, and God still used him. Jacob had cheated on his family and lied, but God still used him. Jonah was running away from God, and God still used him. Elijah was depressed and discouraged and tired of life and wanted to to die, and yet God still used him. Thomas doubted God. Peter cursed God. James and John wanted to take advantage of God. Saul, later on, who became Paul, spent his early life persecuting the church of God. Let me tell you something. The Bible does not show you a picture of perfect people who follow Christ. The Bible shows you a picture of real people like you and me who are so imperfect, but who get up in the morning and say, you know what, despite what I did yesterday, I'm going to do my best to plow forward today because I'm going to give my heart and life to Jesus Christ. Sometimes we say it's too crowded for you, Christ. Sometimes we say I just don't have the time. Sometimes we say it's just so late, just too late. And then sometimes we say this. It's just too complicated. It's just so complicated. I've got a family to take care of. I've got a job to go to that's working me so many hours. I've got to provide for my family. I've got a career I'm working on. And if I take the time to become a Christian now, it would really mess things up. It would change everything. Guess what? You're right. I can't change that one. Because the truth is, you are right. You are absolutely right. Because when Jesus comes into your house, He doesn't leave things where they are. When Jesus comes into your house, He will change things around. When Jesus walks into your house, He has the right to come in and He will rearrange your furniture, so to speak. He will rearrange your priorities. The things you used to sweep under the rug... He'll pull that rug back. And he'll clean it out. It'll hurt in the process. But he doesn't leave it that way, see. All those jumbled up messes that you've been avoiding in your closets, Terry mentioned that a minute ago, he opens the door of those closets. He lets the skeletons come falling out left and right. You know why? Because he's not ashamed of you. It was for that very reason that he hung upon that cross. So you don't have to live with that kind of shame and burden anymore. He arranges it the way it's supposed to be. And if you're concerned that if you let Jesus come into your life that things are going to change, well, I'm here to tell you that's a very valid concern. You're absolutely right. But you know what? It's like I heard one preacher say one time, very wise man, he said, every good change in life begins with an interruption. Every good change in life begins with confronting all of the bad things that have happened in your life up until this point. The thing is, you cannot have growth until you have a little bit of alteration in your life. And if you make a little effort, I promise you, Jesus will change your life for the good forever. But what about that last excuse? It's just too crowded. Jesus is just too late. It's just too complicated. But sometimes I think we just think Jesus is too common. Just too common. We like it when we see Jesus casting out demons and and healing people and doing all kinds of miracles. But I think what happens is, is that we forget that before he walked on water, he slept in a dirty feeding trough. 
I think we tend to forget that before he healed the hands of those who were the paralytics, he held the hands of a woman who was just a common girl. We forget that Jesus comes to us not just in miraculous moments, but he comes to you every day in those mundane places, those little places where you don't think he's there. He comes in those times when you're feeling angry on the inside, frustrated against things in your life. He comes into those places where you're having fear and doubt and worry about money, about health, about whatever it may be. He comes in every single moment of your life, whether you're up on top of the roller coaster or whether you're down in the valley of the shadow of death. He's there at every single moment because that moment was so common that night in Bethlehem, almost everybody missed it. Don't do the same thing. As I get ready to close this morning, I want to say this. Jesus is definitely knocking on the door of some of your hearts right now. If not, most of you, every one of you have received his forgiveness through the shedding of his blood. There are so many of you right now, this morning, who have been baptized. You've submitted yourself to Christ. You've received the Holy Spirit. You, you, you have been walking with God. And if you are, praise God for that. But there may be some of you through going back into sin, throwing back into patterns that you know that you're not supposed to be in, that you've taken Christ who lives inside of you and you've kind of pushed him over to the doorway just a little bit. There may be some of you who have even opened the door and pushed him to the outside and closed it. You know what he's saying to you? There's not a room in your house that I'm not willing to go in with you. There is not a room in your house. And I, what I'm doing right now is I'm knocking on the door of your marriage. Those marriage problems that you know need to be handled, that you've been sweeping under the rug, today's the day they end. God wants to heal that marriage. He may be coming and he's saying, I'm knocking on the door of your parenting. I hear how you yell at your children. I know you, the, the anger and the frustration you feel on the inside. I know that feeling of not having self-control, but I'm here to help you and to show you how to raise your kids so that one day they will honor me. He may be coming in and knocking on the door of your relationships and how you treat people. He sees how you talked to that person last week. He sees how you spoke behind that person behind their back a few weeks ago. He remembers everything. The Bible says not one idle word will not be remembered on the day of judgment. He comes in and he's, he's knocking about your worries. He hears those concerns. He hears those cares. He knows about the questions you have about your health. He's knocking on the door of your office. He's knocking on the door of your work. He's knocking on the door of your finances. He hears the fear and the frustration. There's not a single door in your house that he does not want to walk in with you and completely transform that part of your life. There's also the basement. You know where I'm going with this one. Sometimes we walk around with things that we've buried so deep and we swear to God I'll never say anything to everyone because if somebody knew about that thing, I would be judged and left alone and forgotten. He wants to go down to the basement too.
whatever that thing is that you have buried deep inside, you know as well as I know that it is gnawing away at your soul. That's why the Bible says confess your faults to one another so that what? You can be healed. Grace is here for you right now. You don't have to live it anymore. God is asking you to be the innkeeper of your own heart. Don't use any excuses this morning and to let him come in. Would the church agree with me this morning and say amen? If this invitation belongs to you, only you know because the Spirit of God has just showed it to you. And so if this invitation is yours, I'm going to ask the deacons this morning, as well as any elders who feel uh, the calling, please go ahead and go to the side. You may come forward to see me for baptism, or you may go to any one of us for prayer. And can you do this now in the name of Jesus Christ as we stand and sing?